I think we have to start this episode talking about the Mike Florio steak, right? It's I, beautiful. I, it's, it's it's wonderful. It's one of the it's one of the funny like I I don't mind taking pictures of food and putting it on Twitter. Like that's part of my brand. Like I, I put like I tweeted something about a new restaurant in Auburn on like Thursday night last week and it like blew up for some reason. It, it's like the most interaction I've gotten on a tweet in a while. Um, but like, I'm big on like tweet stuff. Like I'll tweet stuff that other people made like restaurants, other people like, like that'll, that'll work for me. But like when you, when you, especially as a public figure or, you know, someone, Mike Florio has almost 1.8 million Twitter followers. Like you're opening yourself up to criticism because like people are very, people are very, uh, quick on the trigger when it comes to food. And it's like, tweeting photos of food that you made it's like it's such a dangerous game to play it is such a dangerous game to play but these guys keep doing it and and if you haven't seen it pro football talk on twitter uh go go look up the state because it is like i think you said it parent before you started recording it's like i like i would never like, what did you say you were like uh you seem pretty confident in your steak uh, cooking abilities, but you're never going to put that out there. I can make a fine, dare I say it, on a good day, a good steak. But why would I open myself up to finding who thinks that is or isn't? And they don't even know because they won't have eaten it. But, you know, the visual appearance of it, all right, that is a huge aspect of the dining experience. And so what if someone doesn't like the way I buttered it? Or maybe they think it's a little too rare. Maybe the seasoning isn't flavorful enough for them. I don't know. And then sometimes uh, I don't think that the, the iPhone does the food justice, although those cameras have gotten pretty good. They, they have gotten really good. Um, yeah, I guess so, so this steak, if you haven't seen it, you need to look it up. But if for those of you who haven't seen it and, and haven't seen it yet, I will say this. I tweeted this on Saturday night. It, it looks like if you take one of those like strawberry shortcake ice cream bars um, that you can get it like a, you know, you can get it from the ice cream truck and you just drop it into the dirt correctly because the inside of the steak is red. It is blood red. Uh, it is about as rare as possible, which is fine. I mean, I've had, I've had, I've had raw steak before. Um, you know, you can, uh, it's, it's perfectly, perfectly fine. If you, if you eat it that way, I, I prefer a little bit more on the rear side, but this thing is just, I mean, it's still mooing on the inside. And then the, there's like outside, like per, the perimeter of it is like almost, it's like white. Like, you know, it's, it's gray to the point of almost being white. And then the outside, a bunch of seasoning on it and it's just black. So uh, my friend Robbie's tweeted, it looked like he cooked it, um, a thousand uh, on an, a thousand degree grill for, on each side for like a minute. It's like burned on the outside like and then like completely just blood raw, red raw on the inside and it's and it, he's like he's like yeah this is cool man like you know <laughs> I did a good job here I was um, not the only person to make this observation but it just looks like ahi tuna yeah which is no, not it what it is it looks like he cooked a sushi roll <laughs> like he, he just he just lined it up like that at Amsterdam uh, Cafe there is a dish they intend to look a lot like that. But he is he is cooking steak and they are cooking tuna. <laughs> so your steak your steak guy. We did we did the guide, the painter sharpless guide to um sushi rolls recently. Steak. You say you cook a good steak. We're recording this on Sunday afternoon. I just had a steak. I like a couple hours ago. Um 
my uh, is my grandfather's birthday, and my dad, his son, uh, cooked steaks for everybody, which was really nice and really good, and it was a, it was a great Sunday meal. Um, I prefer mine. I think if I if I I'm picking the doneness, medium rare is the way I'm gonna go. Where 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 is the where is the Painter Sharpless, like your good steak. When you say you can make a good steak, what are you doing? Medium rare, and uh, I'm leaning on the uh, emphasis of rare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What kind of seasoning are you using? I'm pretty you? simple. Salt, pepper, and a lot of butter. There you go. There you go. I, the simplicity is good. I, I think if you start if you start getting too far off the off the beaten path, you can get a little. I think we're we're. I think my family always grew up doing Montreal steak seasoning, which is good. Like it's a, it's a good way to do it. But yes, yeah, the simple stuff can also you know work just fine. I don't think you want to get too far out there. Uh, I, I don't understand, and I'm sure some of you out here are like this, and we love you all just the same. But um, the people who eat like well done steaks, like medium, like I grew up eating medium, sometimes even medium well, but the well done steaks, like. I mean, just just go get a hamburger steak. Come on, like if, if that's if that's what you really want. Like I just, it seems so. I mean, it just doesn't do it. Just doesn't do the meat justice. And I'm not a person who likes beef a ton. Like steak is like pretty much the only way I will eat beef regularly, and it's not even super super regularly. And I just, man, I I feel sorry for all of you. I hope I hope one day you can you can uh, come into the light over here with me and Pear on our on our medium rare steaks. Yeah, you know, anytime you can throw in like. Some paprika, maybe a little garlic, onion powder. Those things can go well too. I'm, but again, I'm I'm looking for flavorful. I want it to be juicy, tender. Uh, some people would say undercooked. Nonetheless, let those flavors really come out. Simplicity is the name of the game in the Sharpless household. Are you a steak? Are you a steak sauce person? Because I've never been. No, I, I mean you know, if, no, no. I think it. Yeah, I it, think like it you, should be good enough to just eat on right. its own. Yeah, so that's a big controversy, and not even a controversy, but like that's a big take for like um, I know Andy Staples, who I used to work with at the Athletic, and like his thing is that on top of being a, a really good college football writer, is that he is like the the the, the food expert, um, you know, for for that corner of the internet. Um, his big take is like with barbecue, he's like if the barbecue is good enough, it doesn't need sauce. And like for a while, I was like mm, that's kind of iffy, but then the more and more I eat barbecue and the you know i guess the older i get i'm like yeah he's absolutely right like you know it can stand on its own now i will forever have a soft spot for white barbecue sauce yeah yeah and 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 i think that's the thing it's like with white barbecue sauce is it's like it's an alabama thing right it's 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 a north alabama invention um you know for a southern state and i know we're on the border but like uh, of, of these areas but like you know, North Carolina and South Carolina have these like really definitive barbecue styles. And then you got like in Tennessee, you got especially the Memphis style. And then you got, you know, different areas. And Kentucky has its own way. St. Missouri Lewis. has its own. Yeah. You know, get into Kansas City and all that. And Georgia doesn't really have a distinct style. I don't think it, somebody Peaches. will probably correct me. If, yeah. Um, and Alabama, like, you know, pork, there's really no other special way to do it. But, you know, with chicken and stuff like that, white barbecue sauce, like, yeah, I used to, I used to not like it growing up. Um, you know, my, my parents would have it, and I was just like, eh. but no, I, I do have a soft spot for it for it uh, now. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the, like with 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 barbecue. It's like if it's good enough, you're not gonna need sauce. And I think steak is like a hundred percent in that same in that same category. But I'm glad I'm glad we're on the same page and done this. And I, I feel like that kind of made sense for you because like 
you know, I, I don't think, I don't think we've ever had steak at this together at any point. No, I can't remember a time where we can't, enjoyed yeah. steaks with one another. Unfortunately, although uh, I don't know, do you? Are you someone who enjoys grilling out? For whatever reason, that is an activity that I don't seem to believe you would enjoy. So, but then again, you have a family. I know you'll have a porch, like a big family. So that may mm-hmm. or may be something yeah. you'll do that I'm not aware of. So yeah, my dad does it a lot, and I enjoy it. Um, we have a you know in my parents' house we have a a nice like eating uh, area outside. My uh, my brother in law built a table like a like a big table for all of us that that we can sit outside and eat. It's really cool. I actually did it on Sunday. Um, but yeah, like I, I like it. I've never like I've grilled like twice in my life because my dad is just. I, I think my dad's really good and really skilled at it, and so I just let him cook like literally. Uh, you know, let him do that. But um, yeah, no, I'm a, I'm I'm a fan. I'm a fan of it. I just. You know, I, I the stuff I cook tends to be more inside the kitchen. But you know, if you can master a grill, and I feel like at some point in my life, as you know, a a white male in 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 the Southern United States, I got I got to figure at some point I got to be able to pick up on that. Like I got to I got to do a good job with it. Um, to this point, I have not I have not mastered that yet. I think I think I might need some lessons from you. Hot dog sounds pretty good right now. the Auburn Observer Podcast, the weekend edition. Justin Ferguson right here in Auburn, Alabama, Painter Tropos and Parts Unknown. Hello, Painter. Hello. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. It's getting hot down here, Painter. It is yeah, really getting yeah, warm. Yeah. It's supposed to supposed to hit the mid-90s down here in Auburn. Parts Unknown feeling a heat wave as well? We did get a heat wave middle of the week. I looked outside. Uh, well, I stepped outside and it was hotter than I'd expected it to be, but the heat index, 106 in the middle of the afternoon. Woo! So the real feel giving us some trouble, but the rain has come in. Yesterday, a beautiful day. Temperatures in the mid to low 80s. So I had the windows down. I was listening to K-pop. I was going yeah, to get you told some me drinks. That. You text, Everything you... was good. You texted me. I did not know you were a K-pop person. It just it just happened. I don't typically seek it out, but you know, a BTS song came on. Mm-hmm. I just sort of let it continue. Well, so we're gonna put BTS at the end of this podcast, right? I think that's kind of where we're heading. I think that's where I think that's where we're heading. I, you know, K-pop's one of those places. One of those places. One of those things where it's like some of the stuff I've heard is really good. Uh, I'm more scared of the culture that surrounds K-pop, like the the fan bases. Like that and the, in NBA Twitter. Ooh, yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty wild. But uh, yeah, shout out to K-pop. Shout out to uh, shout out to things warming up, and uh, we've got we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, appreciate everybody listening. Um, last week we kind of went, uh, you know, both of our podcasts last week were kind of um, you know shot from the hip. They're not necessarily newsy. Um, we did last week, we did the, what if the alternate, uh, universe theory of Auburn athletics. There's another one of those, uh, that we're going to talk about, uh, later in this episode. Uh, it's a pretty fun one that I, I did a little bit more digging into right before we started recording. And I know painter especially will, uh, feel, feel something about a certain twist in the tail there. Um, I can't wait to reveal that one to him. Um, but so we'll, we'll do that. And then also, um, on Friday, uh, a lot of you um, reached out and, and, and um, you know, our, our, our guest podcast 
um, have been pretty well received because you're tired of hearing the two of us. We talk all the time and, and getting smart people on, uh, as, a, as, as third mics has really, um, it's a really fun part of the off season. We're glad you're enjoying them and we're going to continue to keep a lot of those premium pods. we got some new ones, uh, in the works, but yeah, Alex Kirshner, uh, from split zone duo, uh, was our Friday podcast. A really good episode there. We had Matt Brown a couple weeks ago. We got more coming up. Um, yeah, I, and uh, I am going to be going on vacation um, in a couple of weeks, a week and a half. And then while I'm gone, uh, we're going to have some different things. Uh, Painter is going to take the take the wheel of the of the uh, of the newsletter and the and the podcast. He's got some fun stuff lined up. It'll be another Painter mailbag. Um, I have gotten somebody a, a contributor of sorts. Um, um, there'll be uh, there'll be at least one uh, newsletter put out by somebody who is not me, uh, that I'm looking forward to a couple of, uh, uh, looking at a couple of stories, a couple of, uh, feature stories that are, um, you know, pretty good off season, uh, talk, um, and a little, little bit of curve balls, uh, there, um, a peek behind the scenes, ladies and gentlemen, a yeah. look at an individual that maybe you haven't gotten before. Yeah. And, and, and there's another really fun one about something we talk about a lot, uh, here, but some, some aspects of it at, that uh that that we we don't discuss quite as much so um you know we might have some contributed pieces as well uh while i'm gone and uh but yeah painter's gonna have some more guests on here upcoming uh and uh we will continue to try to get folks on because those are the podcasts especially in the off season that you guys like the most uh we'll keep it rolling here but we got some stuff to catch up on uh here news wise and i uh, have some discussion about football and basketball lined up so let's get it underway we're going to start with basketball um, so last Friday, um, there was a newsletter out for this. If you're a subscriber to the observer, you read it. Uh, but I wanted to talk about it a little bit more here. Um, didn't talk about it in the last podcast because we had Alex on, uh, but Julian Phillips committing to Tennessee over Auburn. Yeah. There were other places he could have gone. Um, but it was ultimately going to be down between Alabama or, or sorry, Auburn and Tennessee. Um, you know, depending on pretty much everybody you looked at who, who covers recruiting uh, both nationally and locally here on the basketball scene. Um, Auburn missing out on a guy that really fun player. Um, you know, Julian Phillips would have been the second highest rated player in, in program history behind Jabari Smith. Um, just a little bit ahead of uh, Yohan Traor. Um, a really, really cool um, kind of connection there. Auburn was trying to, you know, see if they could pick off both of the, the crown jewels of, of LSU's recruiting class. Instead, he's going to Tennessee, and um, you know, I, I, I talked about this uh, a little bit in the newsletter on Friday. But for those of you who who, who hadn't read it, or um, you know, it, it it's it's been a couple of days at this point. But the more and more I think about this painter, the more and more I think this this ultimately came down to a situation where um, Tennessee desperately needed Julian Phillips. They really, really, really needed Julian Phillips, whereas Auburn has a really good roster and a really deep and a really balanced and, and um, I mean, a strong, a strong, strong roster without Julian Phillips. And they were trying to kind of get the best last possible upgrade uh, they could get into the, into the fold. Uh, and so it made sense there, but Tennessee was desperate and I think they recruited pretty desperately, not saying anything nefarious there, but I'm just saying, and I know there's been talk about like how much NIL played into, into account here. I don't have any info on that. Um, but I know it has been the talk of a lot of what's gone on with this, uh, with, with Julian Phillips's, um, decision. But I'll say this, if you look at it from a purely, purely basketball perspective, 
Tennessee really, really, really need the, needed this guy and pulled out all the stops to get him. Whereas I think Auburn, while they recruited him as hard as uh, as hard as they normally recruit folks, um, this is not as make or break for their roster as I think it was for Tennessee. And that's an interesting dynamic, Painter, because it's rare that Auburn gets this deep in a recruiting uh, process under under Bruce Pearl and doesn't come out with the guy, uh, doesn't land the guy. Um, at least going to another college. We've seen guys go to the G League or go to, like, uh, in the case of Scoot Henderson, um, I guess, yeah. Uh, it, you know, you have these these guys who, who decide to adopt other other ways. But one of the few times that this something goes down to the wire and it ultimately is like, you know, Auburn kind of gets picked off uh, here in a spot where they used to do this to other teams. And now Tennessee's kind of doing this to Auburn. It's a really, I think it's a really interesting kind of shift in the dynamics of SEC basketball. And now he's going to go to the University of Tennessee. What is there to say about money that isn't mine? But, you know, I'm sure they did put on all the stops. If it's, oh, yeah. a, if it's a money thing, go get your money. I'd like to think that we can match, but maybe we're not in the matching business all the time. I don't know. Uh, I would have. It would have been quite the off season if Auburn had lost that front court and then replaced it with Phillips and Broom and obviously mm-hmm. Treor and. Uh, anyway, still in pretty great shape, all things considered. Yeah. You know, shout out yeah. to Rick Barnes and whatever it is they had to do to win this battle. Well, okay, so it's interesting because I think a lot of folks have pointed out this was kind of the discourse after Julian Phillips. Uh, committed elsewhere, uh, or committed to uh, Tennessee, I should say, um, about Tennessee. And it's like, you know, a lot of Auburn fans rightfully pointing out on Twitter, like, look, Auburn's got a much better track record of getting dudes into the league here recently than Tennessee does under Rick Barnes. Um, Yes, Grant Williams is a great example of what Tennessee's done, but, you know, Auburn can point to uh, they can point to Isaac Okora. They can point to Ch- point to Chumo Kiki. They they can point to even a guy like Jared Harper, and they're about to be able to point to Jabari Smith and and Walker Kessler um, as, as first rounders. Whereas Tennessee has not had that same type of production. We'll see where Kennedy Chandler goes. We'll see what all that goes, uh, what all that means there for them. But I think you know with with this this situation, um, you know for Auburn it's 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 just this it's just this spot where it's like these these classes are so small and and Auburn's just done so I mean you think about getting uh, Treor you think about uh getting Jani Broom you think about the fact that Chance Westry and and Trey Donaldson are already in the fold you think about how many guys are bringing back next year they were trying to complete a 13-man roster with this a scholarship spot Tennessee's in a spot um, according to my buddy Mike Wilson at the Knoxville News Sentinel, Tennessee has three scholarships still open. They've had five guys uh, enter the transfer portal this offseason. And like I said, Kenny Chandler um, declared for the draft. They only have one other 2022 signing per this. And it's like if Tennessee wants to compete with the likes of Auburn and Kentucky and Arkansas and Alabama with the way those two rosters have reloaded this offseason – they were in danger. They were in great danger getting left behind. Now, let's let's be clear. Tennessee's bringing some good players back. Um, Rick Barnes is still a re- really good coach, especially in the regular season. Um, they're still they were still going to be fine. But when you look at just the arms race that had happened across the SEC and how Auburn was ahead of the game, like Tennessee got desperate here and and, and landed a guy they absolutely needed to have and. 
we'll see what that ends up looking like for his, uh, you know, his career. Um, I think Auburn, the Auburn Tennessee game will continue to be a really hotly contested one year, year in and year out. Um, is that the second or third biggest rival Auburn has in hoops right now? We know who number one is, right? I don't think it's Alabama or Kentucky level, but it might be. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I tend to think that the Kentucky one has started to mean more. Yeah. Uh, given that Auburn's actually swinging at that weight class. However, the ascent of Tennessee with Rick Barnes and Auburn with, with Bruce Pearl are fairly aligned. And so that does add sort of a... Uh, and then, of course, you can tie in Bruce's brief history with Tennessee, that there are sort of these other stories that make that game as compelling as the Kentucky game, even though, you know, we gave Kentucky its fans and some of its biggest dorks in media a hard time over the Super Bowl comments. But there is truth in that anytime you're playing Kentucky, there is an element of oh, yeah. of that game being large in part because of their history and in part because they're generally like a top 10, top 15 program. And yeah, Auburn yeah, is starting to get into a place where it feels like more often than not, it will be a, if not top 10, top 15 program, a mm-hmm. top 25, yeah. maybe top 20 program almost every season. Yeah. Now, and, and they're trying to be like, look, the the stats are the stats. Auburn over the last five years has been the most successful SEC basketball program. They're now in this position though that they're ahead of the game in the arms. Like the fact that you landed Treyor and Broom when you lose Smith and Kessler is like that's boom boom you got it. And the thing with Julian Phillips is is interesting because personally, okay, all right, I'm gonna try to phrase this correctly. Julian Phillips, like you absolutely needed to go after Julian Phillips, right? Five stars. Get the best talent you can get, get at any point in time, always. 100%. You get a second chance and an elite player, go after it. Like, just try as hard as you can. But I would argue that a guy like Julian Phillips would have made things, I won't say difficult, but it would have made things really interesting for how Auburn was going to balance out their roster next season, right? Um, Alan Flanagan is still here. Like, you know, and, and Alan. If Allen can get back to what he was pre-injury or closer to what he was pre-injury, that's a fourth-year senior who's a really, really good basketball player at his best. And, like, I know last year offensively he struggled for a number of reasons, but I think also his defense and his rebounding, uh, especially in certain games, really stood out. Um, but, yes, it makes sense, right? What happens if you bring in a guy like Julian Phillips and you uh, get a really good Allen Flanagan next year, which, it, uh, you know, it's kind of like the same thing with, with Treyor and, and Broom and, and Jalen Williams. It's like, okay, well, Bruce Pearl and, um, you know, in the offseason, Bruce Pearl has made a really big emphasis on these these fourth-year seniors, these guys that he really, really likes. Um, he wants to he wants them to have huge roles next season. And, you know, experience, um, you know, experience and, and just kind of that veteran presence means a lot, especially when you get into the postseason. And Auburn didn't have a ton of that last year. Uh, outside of Zepp Jasper, and look, Zepp Jasper, you know, was brand new to the team. It's a little different than a guy like Williams or Flanagan who are going to be there for, you know, this will be their fourth year. Um, and then you have Chris Moore and, and, and Chance Westry. Like, Chance Westry, three, two, maybe. Like, I don't know where, where it all fits, but like, it seems like it's it would have been a little bit more interesting to see when you bring in an elite, like, must-start kind of guy at that spot right away, like it would have been interesting to see where that where that roster goes. Instead, now you have one scholarship open, and if they choose to use it, which they don't have to, um, you're not going to play 13 guys 
uh, you know, in a rotation. We already saw Stretch Akinbola and Chris Moore not play a whole lot, uh, especially in SEC play last year. Um, so, like, there's not this, like, super overwhelming need that they absolutely have to have if a guy. You, but if you bring in Phillips, does it make life on Flanagan weird given that he's a senior and, you know, someone that I'd like to think of as a, a very much a difference maker that with or without Phillips, if Flanagan has a great year, your team has probably moved up to another level, something it didn't have last season when it ultimately gets bounced early in, in each of the tournaments. And Phillips, I think, generally speaking, I think most people are going to be pro-competition because that tends to push people, and I think that's where I would land here. However, there is an interesting dynamic of, like, the super talented kid, potentially one and done, coming to play alongside Flanagan. Now, I think the minutes were going to be there, were they not, given Cambridge's departure? So it's not like Phillips comes in and suddenly... If he's playing well, Flanagan's just not seeing the floor. Yeah, it would have made it would have been interesting for a guy like Chance Westry, I think, a sure. little bit more. And and Westry's a guy that, you know, not a five star, but really close to one. And so like I to me, to this is just me speaking, you know, Julian Phillips was a three that could play four. Like he was he was a three to four kind of player. Six eight, drives to the bat. I mean, he's so, so good at driving to the basket. Really good offensive rebounder. I thought he was gonna be a really good pickup for what Auburn needed. Not necessarily a shooter, not necessarily the best kind of like positional fit. Because, okay, here's here's the situation Auburn's in right now. Jalen Williams, Yohan Traor, Janai Broom, Dylan Carwell, Stretch Akinbola. Four and five, bang, locked up. Like, that, that is that is your positions. I mean, that that is a deep front court that you can rely on. You have three point guards now with Wendell Green Jr. and Zepp Jasper and Trey Donaldson. Three, you have Flanagan. This is where Westry can play in. You have Chris Moore. Phillips would have made it things interesting. The two is going to be interesting to see because right now it's Katie Johnson and then probably Chance Westry and then probably some of Zepp Jasper, especially if Wendell, you know, the Wendell, the, the Wendell Zepp lineup, the, that was a pretty effective combo last season for Auburn uh, when they were on the floor together. It, to me, Auburn could have used more of a two that could play a three. Now, there are threes, there are threes that can can morph into fours. But there are also threes that can morph into twos, kind of like how, you know, there are ones that can play two or twos that can play one or twos that can play three, right? You know, you have combo guards and you have wings. It's like positionless basketball is, is a real thing. I think Auburn, the deeper it gets into the Bruce Pearl tenure, and he said this before. He said point blank. He's like, I still believe in position. You know, I, I still believe in positions in basketball. Um, last season, I think it was a great example. Everyone on the planet knew Walker Kessler was a five and Jabari Smith was a four. Bang, they were locked into those spots. I think a guy like Phillips would have made a little bit interesting. Where it's like, how would you figure out the three? Can, he doesn't really help you out at the two. Whereas at the two, you really have KD. You can get some from Zep. You can probably get some from Chance Westry. But like, this is where the spot where you know this is where Devin Cambridge played last season. Cambridge played a decent amount of two, especially when Flanagan got back, you know, onto the team um, from from his injury. So I think that two spot is where things are going to get really interesting. A big guard or a three that can help you do some stuff that would allow you to play a guy like Westry at the two, or maybe even a guy like Alan Flanagan getting some run at the two. Not saying replace Katie Johnson by any means, but it's like you just need depth there. The depth in that spot is a little different. So I think now with your final scholarship spot, we saw, you know, before when Auburn went all in on, on Julian Phillips, there were guys that they were linked to that were guards or wings in the transfer portal. 
I think there is going to be some more of that coming up again. There are some guys out there that are um, that that Auburn could get into the mix for. Here's a big. Here's a big. I don't know if it's necessarily a question mark, but it's like a. Here's a big thing to keep in mind. Put a pin in this. June first is the NBA draft deadline. If you're going to be in the draft, you're going to stay in the draft. You have to stay. Uh, you you have to stay. You know by then. If you want to come back to college and maintain your eligibility, you can pull out before June first. Then it's locked in. There are a number of guys who are in the NBA tra- in the NBA draft right now and in the transfer portal. They're going through the draft process. They're going to things like what Alan Flanagan's doing and what some of these other guys are doing when they go to the combine and these camps and stuff like that. They're getting feedback from NBA teams, and then they're going to make the decision: Okay, am I going to be uh, a college player next year, or should I go on and try to get that money in the NBA? There are a number of guys who are going through the process right now as pros. And if they decide to come back to college, they are going to be high, high value targets in the transfer portal, maybe even more so than the guys that are in there right now. Now, interesting thing here is some of these guys are getting courted by teams already, but they're still doing their due diligence and saying, hey, I'm trying to see if I, I can play in the NBA next year, if I should go ahead and be a draft guy. Um, there will be other guys that kind of pop up, right? And... I'm not saying these guys are guys that are going to be targeted by Auburn, but I'm going to give you an example here. You have the number one transfer currently on Evan Maya's uh, list of the transfer portal is Matthew Meyer. You may remember Matthew Meyer. He plays at Baylor. He's 6'9", but played more like a guard at Baylor. Um, you may remember he had a crazy dunk uh, against against Auburn last season when they played him. Um 35% shooter from deep in his career. Didn't have a great season from deep last year, but has had some really good ones in his career. He would be a fifth-year player. He's going through the draft process right now. And um, if he decides to go back to college, m- more than likely going to go into the portal or is going to stay in the portal. Alabama, Arkansas, a ton of other teams are going after him. That seems to me more of like what Auburn could go after. A guy like Meyer could help out with your shooting, Give you another, give you some more size in the backcourt, and and can be a little bit more flexible in that guard versatility than more in that frontcourt versatility than a guy like Julian Phillips. Um, you know, a, another one to keep in mind, and I'm not saying this guy's going, uh, you know, pulling out of the pulling out of the draft. I'm saying but another, it, but okay. <laughs> but another guy who is going through the draft process right now that Scotty is. Pippen. Well, I was junior. <laughs> I wasn't going to go with him, but I was going to go one with somebody that Auburn fans are very familiar with for a number of reasons. Tevin Brown. Mm. Tevin Brown is going through the draft process at the moment. If he decided to pull out and come back to school, well, he's probably not coming back to Murray State. Interesting thing here is that Murray State's head coach, Matt McMahon, is now at LSU. LSU has picked up several guys that are former Murray State guys. Matt McMahon having to rebuild this roster completely from scratch is going to his going to the players uh, that helped him get this job in the first place. Which Very funny that cool. LSU literally didn't have a team after Will Wade was <laughs> RIP, we love you, unfairly, unjustly removed from his post, and uh, there was no evidence. And uh, now it has become Murray State's problem <laughs> because they're just like, yes, the good ones may come to the SEC. Mm-hmm. But hey... That's the life of the transfer portal, baby. 
Don't be a uh, non-Power 5 school. Tevin Brown is going to be part of the G League Elite Camp that um, Alan Flanagan is going to be a part of here uh, very soon. Um, he's from Fairhope. He's you know Alabama kid. Obviously was a sniper. Has um, been actively courted by Auburn fans basically since Auburn played them months ago. Yes, exactly. Um, so it will be... Look, I mean, Tevin Brown. I th- Tevin Brown's an awesome player, and if he wants to go ahead and go be a pro, I mean, he, he has all bread, the time. baby. Yeah, we're you know we're always going to be big Tevin Brown fans. Guy who was, you know, he's already played four years of college. Uh, under you know you know had to go the mid major route and um, is going to have a chance to play in the NBA. Like he's he's awesome and and um, always cool to see in state guys get that opportunity. But he's an example of a player that if he pulled out of the draft, I would imagine Auburn would make a big push for him. Now of course there's the LSU mm. thing hanging out there if he ends up doing that. But there's going to be guys like that. Meyer's a good example. Brown's a good example. I want to go back to either the those guys Brown. are getting recruited. I'm not even. I'm not saying either of those guys are going to get recruited by Auburn. I'm not saying either of those guys are coming out of the draft. I'm just saying those are examples of guys that I think would be better fits for that last scholarship. Not necessarily than what Julian Phillips did. I think positionally wise of what Auburn needs right now, I think those would be kind of the ideal type of players. Go ahead. Oh, just that Tevin Brown's recruitment will ultimately be finished by Bruce Pearl and that staff getting him across the finish line should he decide to come back. You know, Tevin Brown will have a decision to make. But, you know, fans, we like to give ourselves credit for affecting the game. Well, I think in this one, fans serve a little bit of credit if he ends up in a in a winding sort of way finding himself they on try, the planes. Auburn fans tried to make the Julian Phillips thing happen, but uh, maybe you get a second chance here. But, yeah, I, I would expect Auburn to use a – you know, I've been asked, people have asked, like, you know, do you think they'll just eat the scholarship this year as part of the NCA punishment and just say, all right, fine, we'll move on? The fact that they, the fact that they have been reaching out to people before Julian Phillips, you know, that makes sense. The fact that they went so hard for Phillips makes me think that they're not completely 100% settled. I, again, this is the thing about Phillips not committing to Auburn. Auburn's roster is still very deep, they're still very balanced, they're still very talented. It's going to be a really, really good basketball team next year. I think they're looking for that final piece still, and they're not necessarily wanting to go into next year having to kind of, like, I think they could use a two or a three type, a big guard, and then if somebody could help them out with their three-point shooting, again, doesn't need to be a clear-cut starter. I don't think we should underrate, just because, like, look, recruiting, you know, you get all the shiny objects, the shiny new objects, and Janai Broom and Yoan Traor, were amazing players, and they're going to be amazing pickups for Auburn, and you should 100% be excited about them and, and their potential. But I will say, when it comes to the two and the three and <clears throat> what Auburn's got, you know, uh, you know, in in the boat right now, just because you don't get Julian Phillips, and he would have been a huge, huge pickup for Auburn, and you, a guy that a lot of people would have been very, very excited about, do not use that and overlook what you have coming back in Allen Flanagan if he can if he can be healthy and get back to his old ways. And Chance Westry, don't uh, don't overlook what what Westry is going to bring to the table because outside of the last like two or three seasons, you know, outside of the last two or three recruiting cycles, if Chance Westry would have signed with Auburn, he would have been a program changing recruit at that point. So that's the kind of talent level. He's a high four star. You know who else were high four stars at forward that did a really good job for Auburn? Chumo Kiki and Isaac Okoro. That's the type of player, talent-wise, that you're bringing in, that that level. And Auburn's got a good track record with those guys. So, yes, it's disappointing for Auburn fans, 
that you didn't get Julian Phillips, he would have made a really good team even better. But I think this last scholarship spot, especially if they go after certain transfers, could, you know, no harm, no foul at this point. We'll see what Julian Phillips does at Tennessee. I think he's going to be an excellent player. He's he's a really, really good physical basketball player. Um, but, you know, Auburn's still going to be fine moving forward um, because of the hard work they've done this offseason before getting to that point. This was, like I said at the beginning, this was going to be a luxury upgrade for Auburn's roster. For Tennessee, it was a make-or-break type of player, and I think that has a lot to do with the fact that he's going to be going to Knoxville instead of Auburn. The boys need some shooters. Let's get some shooters in the house. Yeah, I think they could help that. And, like, look, just because you're a really good shooter somewhere doesn't mean you're going to be a really good shooter at Auburn. You know, when it's, Wendell Green Jr. and Ken, Katie Johnson both had awesome numbers in their previous in, in their freshman seasons. That did not carry over to Auburn, right? It's just up and down. A guy like uh, – I mentioned Matthew Mayer. Matthew Mayer's had some excellent three-point shooting seasons. Last year wasn't that great. So, like, you can it can kind of balance out that way. So – um, but I, I'm 100% with you. I, I think I think where Julian Phillips wouldn't have been a huge help for you in terms of three-point ability, I think he would have been one of those guys that could have affected the gravity and like you make your inside-out game even stronger. But, yeah, no, they're, they're going to 100% need to, to shoot the ball a lot better, and uh, we'll see where those guys fit into that picture. We've done it, folks. We have conquered yet another beast. Bruce Pearl, keep doing it. And whoever it is that is setting up these NIL deals, keep it coming, baby. The ROI on this man is great. All right, this is what it's all about. You guys like to brag to your friends that your program's good. Well, he's doing it. So let's let's keep the cash flowing. All right, this is good stuff. I am still thrilled about where the boys stand, even without Phillips. And uh, based on everything you just said for the last 15 minutes, Feeling pretty good they wind up with someone that can that can shoot the ball, mm-hmm. please. Like, if they get that and Alan Flanagan takes a step forward, I, I'd hoped he'd take this past season. Well, you know, I, you I, get... I, I still feel like this is a top three team, top four team certainly in the league, and I know that that's, yeah, yeah, 100%. I know that that's saying a lot given that the league is deep because you look around and you expect a lot out of Kentucky and Arkansas and Tennessee and Alabama, but – there's really no reason why with the way this roster is constructed, bringing back some of your experience at guard, they may not win the league, but they should be a top three team in the league. Yeah, no, they, they should. And and I think, uh, to your point, if you get Flanagan back to his, I mean, his pre-injury self was all SEC type of player, right? Doesn't have to be the superstar, the number one alpha dog or anything like that, but it could be really, really good. If you get that, you get um, – I think you get a lot out of Chance Westry, um, and I think I think you get a more stable KD Johnson um, in in this role in this offense. It's going to be a really really good uh, stretch here for for Auburn for sure. I, I think they I think they're in a, a really good spot, and it'll just be a matter of of who puts on the finishing touches to this roster. All right, before we move on to football, uh, a few things here. Um, if you liked uh, that discussion of uh, Julian Phillips and you want to read more about it and what, what Auburn does moving forward, uh, you can check out the newsletter I did last Friday um, about Auburn and Julian Phillips and, uh, and the future uh, of that last roster spot. You can do that at auburnobserver.com. You can also get that Alex Kirshner uh, podcast that uh, a lot of you have, uh, who, who have uh, told us that you really enjoyed. Uh, Alex is, is one of the best in the business, an actual, like, really good professional podcaster, and he decided to slum it with us, uh, us two. 
Um, you can listen to that as well. And everything you got, everything we've got, all all the back uh, catalog of episodes, all of the newsletters, and then any new ones get sent straight to your inbox. Um, you know, most mornings, most weekday mornings at 6 a.m. Central Time, you'll either get a newsletter or a podcast. We've been doing about three newsletters, two podcasts a week. If you have a full subscription to The Observer, $6 a month or $60 a year, sign up at The Observer. There are buttons um, in the email that you may have gotten. There are links in the description. Check us out. Uh, and uh, if you just want to give us a try, a little trial spin, seven-day uh, seven free trial uh, is available through Substack. So you can do that there. Um, but there's also a way to help us out uh, that costs absolutely no money. Uh, for all of our free listeners out there, we appreciate you guys as well. And if you haven't done this yet, Painter can tell you a way you can help us out without paying any of your hard-earned money. Rate, review, subscribe, folks. It's that simple. Just go to your little podcast app, the little purple button, click on it, Auburn Observer in the search bar, scroll down, five stars, you know, subscribe. It's easy. It's there. You leave a little couple words of whatever floats your boat, and then suddenly you've done a a big favor for the boys here. Yep. It it helps us out a ton and we really, really appreciate it. Uh, All of the kind words and the reviews that you guys leave. Uh, And uh, yeah, if you, if you haven't done that yet, uh, it it would mean a ton if you guys helped us out that way. Uh, And it, uh, yeah, it's the best way to support the show uh, and what we do without, uh, without any money, any more money. So you can do that there. Uh, We also need to tell you about our good friends at homefieldapparel.com homefieldapparel.com the number one place to get premium collegiate uh, vintage apparel. We're talking the best designs on the most comfortable gear you can get anywhere. T-shirts, hoodies, sweatshirts, and the like. I've had my um, eye on some Connecticut gear. Okay, what's the what's the Yukon connection Doggies. for you? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, and like you know, it. I mean, the champions. Did you see the Boise State dog shirt that I got in my mystery pack not too long ago? I'm unaware of this. You know, I have I, if you put it online, I just haven't been online quite as much of late. Uh, it's been it's been about it's been about a, a month or so, but I'm gonna send you the I'm gonna send you the picture because I want to hear your live reaction to it. Um, when they did the mystery box, I was like, man, I love home field shirts. I would love to just get any random ones they would send me. And uh, so Boise State has a tradition uh, of uh, having a having a uh, a dog go run uh their kicking tee like after they do a kickoff um the dog will go run and uh and retrieve the tee and so home field uh got a shirt with that on it and now i have uh, now i am a proud owner of the tee dog shirt you may already um, know the answer to this but brian harson seems like a dog guy what kind of dog would he have if he doesn't have one or at least if he does and you know the answer what sort of dog would you expect i, I, I don't know have? i don't know i would think like a retriever of some yeah, kind? Yeah, I'm lab? thinking. I'm uh, yeah. thinking any public position, a great dog to have. The go-to is going to be a golden retriever, maybe a lab of some sort. That's a very American dog, perhaps a German Shepherd, perhaps, or a lovable mutt. You know, just a total yeah. wild card. But I'm thinking the tiers. I'm going easy. One is golden retriever. If you're trying to make a statement with your dog. And then Lab's got to be number two. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Open to suggestions so, from the three spot on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, Send us your opinions on, on Brian Harson's dog. They, they might have it. I haven't dug, it, dug into it You haven't it done, done a study on the, the Harson yeah, I just, family. I just, sent you a, I just sent you a link in the, in the Zoom chat for the, uh, for the Boise State shirt. I think you'll appreciate it. Um, but Homefield Apparel, 
uh, has a ton of, uh, of stuff for a lot of schools that you love or care about or know some people who care about them or you just like the designs. I mean, the amount of home field stuff I have with schools I've never been to or have even visited uh, is pretty, pretty high. Uh, but they got a lot of Auburn stuff there. We got football, basketball, even some baseball designs uh, printed on, like I said, the most comfortable uh, gear that you're going to find anywhere. Um, and if you have never ordered from Home Field Apparel before, you can get uh, 15% off your very first order by using the promo code OBSERVER when you check out. That is OBSERVER in the promo code box when you check out for the first time at homefieldapparel.com. Get you some Auburn gear. Uh, get you some UConn gear, some Boise State stuff. You know, whatever school floats your boat. There's a lot of cool shirts and a lot of cool designs on there. And they're continuing to add some. Uh, I think Arkansas's first up on uh, on Big News Saturday, their new season, which starts this week. Um, so thanks to Connor and Whitney and the gang up in Indianapolis for continuing to support the show and uh, continuing to supply Auburn fans with the best gear you can find anywhere. That is Home Field Apparel. Dot com. All right. The T-Dog athletic wide stance. I like that dog. Looks pleased. It has a purpose. It has a, a goal, a very, you know, and it's, it's to a, collect that tea. It's a very comfortable shirt. Heather really, orange. Yeah. It's a, yeah, it's a cool looking orange. There's an Auburn baseball shirt that they have at home field with that design that I know is, uh, is pretty popular. All right. We've got some football to discuss here. Uh, before we go, uh, let us begin with, uh, the news, uh, of the weekend for Auburn, uh, Auburn football. Craig McDonald, a a safety, uh, he will be a third-year player. He played his first two seasons at Iowa State, uh, has committed to Auburn as a transfer. We talked about how Auburn, you know, Brian Harson even said it, how they wanted more depth in the secondary, especially with how many guys they lost in the portal this past year. Safety was the one position, maybe more so than corner, that Auburn could use some help with. Um you know, you had you had Zion Puckett back, but you know, playing guys like Caden Bridges and, and Caleb Wooden uh, in the spring, Marquis Gilbert coming on as a, as a JUCO player, they just needed more depth, right? They needed more guys who could. Uh, Donovan Kaufman, obviously, a, a big player who can also uh, get some good reps at nickel. They just needed some more depth, to, you know, especially after losing some guys uh, in the portal like Ladarius Tennyson and Amari Harvey, and didn't sign as many. Uh, clear-cut safeties in the in the uh, in the 2022 class, but they will bring in Craig McDonald from Iowa State and uh, big old dude painter, uh, 6'3", 210. Uh, so a big guy over the top at safety. Um, the uh, he redshirted his first year at, at Iowa State, but played the four games uh, that you could play um, before you know while be able to maintain that redshirt. 2021, this is from Iowa State's website. He played in all 13 games. He had three starts, uh, 41 tackles, including 24 solo. Um, had a pass breakup. He had two picks, which tied for the team lead at Iowa State. Uh, looks like he started a lot more towards the end of the season. Had 10 tackles against Oklahoma and a pick. Uh, and then started in the Cheez-It Bowl against Clemson. Uh, had a good game there as well. So, Craig McDonald entering the transfer portal. Big guy. He's from Minneapolis, Minnesota. So this unlike some of Auburn's recent transfers they got, this is not necessarily a dude who's deciding to come back closer to home. In fact, he's going farther away from home, and Auburn is going to pick him up in the safety room. And just look, you know, you needed more experience at safety. You needed more depth. Here's a guy that uh, brings a ton, a ton of um, experience 
uh, or I'm sorry, a, a ton of size. Uh, and I think he can play a role. He's got some good experience as well. And, um, yeah, just a really good pickup. Like, you know, we've talked about it before, Painter. At this point in the transfer portal cycle, you're not going to get these, like, superstar, must-start, you know, household names in the portal. At this point, it's guys just trying to find new homes and new roles, uh, maybe a place where you can get some more playing time, get on a bigger stage, which I think is the case here for, for McDonald uh, coming from Iowa State. Um, and yeah, I mean, just like Daz Warsham, just like I think they're going to try to do with an edge guy, maybe some linemen here in the future, uh, you will take players like this who have at least done it at the power five level and, uh, still have plenty of eligibility left. This guy's got at least three years, uh, that he can play, uh, for the Tigers. No complaints about picking people up in the portal. I'm not going to act like it, you know, probably changes the fate of Auburn, but they have positions of a need to, they have positions they must address. And uh, given that I think that there were some challenges that were added to, to, uh, or that made it harder to add players this season, I, you know, I'll, uh, I I will try not to be too picky and hope that given the power five experience, something comes of that with a little bit of time to practice. And like you said, there's a couple of years there for him to grow into a hopefully yeah. valuable valuable player. I think they could use another edge there. I think if they could get another wide receiver in the, uh, like that, I think you're you're thinking, again, you're getting guys that you get depth, you maybe get a little bit of experience, you get some, you get room to grow in the future. He's not he's not hit his ceiling yet as a player at this point. Um, I think the, the size for him uh, really helps a lot. Yeah, I, I just think uh, this is just, you're, you're trying to reinforce your roster, trying to put it in the best possible position. Again, this is not going to change the win, the expected win total for the team. Right, right. But what it's going to do is saying, hey, if 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 there's an if there are injury concerns or whatever, you feel more comfortable of putting guys in at that position. Or man, if he just really clicks, maybe he can be an impact player from the beginning. Doesn't have the amount of experience that say like a Marcus Harris. Like Marcus Harris was one of Kansas's best players when he transferred to Auburn, but like. Kind of like what Marcus Harris was last season. Like, oh, wow, this is a guy that is going to be able to play right away. And, um, you know, he's going to get on a bigger stage. So we will see that. And uh, interesting, interesting case here uh, with um, interesting case here with, with Craig McDonald because he's coming from Iowa State to Auburn. And Painter, um, oddly enough, Iowa State and Auburn have crossed paths quite a bit, quite a bit. Uh, over the years, whether it's Gene Chizik, Paul oh, Rhodes, yeah. or one uh, uh, very special uh, plane-flying uh, school president. Um, but this, I think this is the first time Auburn has gotten a player from Iowa State. Um, so here's to hoping that uh, the Craig McDonald experience ends better than some of those gentlemen's experiences at Auburn. Need Craig McDonald's uh, take on the campus life of Iowa State. Because beautiful Auburn Ames. is... Auburn's no blooming metropolis, but, you know, there's increasingly things to do. Most people would tell you that it is a charming college town, and mm-hmm. certainly you can find plenty of ways to have a good time if you are an 18 to 23-year-old. Uh, I do wonder what it is like to live in uh, Ames, Iowa. Auburn and Iowa State have never played against each other in football before. All this crossover that Auburn and Iowa State have had, and of course Iowa State, uh, very much like Auburn, state school, ag school, um, you know, in, in, in the heartland, uh, in the case of Iowa State, uh, but they've never played each other. And Auburn's 
you know, Auburn's dance card's pretty punched. Uh, you know, all the holes are pretty much punched for a while when it comes to future matchups. But maybe one day we will see the great Stephen Leith, Gene Chesick Bowl. Um, I and do of course, wonder what Auburn Steve and Leith Auburn is doing. Just cash and checks, man. He really did figure it out. What a beast. What a legend. What a king. Just uh, absolutely finding ways to get paid no matter how badly you fail. Meanwhile, uh, pointing out that Auburn and Iowa State has play, have played against each other in basketball here rather recently. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton and uh, and that team came over uh, pre-COVID, uh, the 2020 season, in the SEC Big 12 Challenge. And I guess to piggyback off my previous point about what it's like to be in Ames, Iowa, I suppose you don't have to, like, wonder that much. I mean, there's not that much special stuff going on in Auburn. Like, there's not that much special stuff happening in Starkville, I'm sure it's just a perfectly fine town where the college basically is the economy. I don't think it's it's rocket science, Painter. <laughs> you know, I think there's a good I think there's a good spot for these college towns that aren't necessarily metropolises or maybe nece- not necessarily like known for any specific thing. Like you know, like you know, everybody ha- the the rep that like Athens has or a rep that like a Chapel Hill has. Um, you know, or these, even going to bigger places like Austin and Nashville. Obviously, yeah. Southern Cal being in LA is like really hard to compare to anything. Right, right. Back to back to football here quickly with with Craig McDonald. Uh, this is also a big time for recruiting, just high school recruiting. And I will say, I think you know Auburn has you know, Terrence Love was the last commitment. Um, I, I wonder how many guys Auburn's going to get here over the next few weeks and months in the recruiting class. I wouldn't be surprised if there's kind of like a wait and see vibe with the 2023 class in regards to Auburn with Brian Harson of all the stuff that happened here in the off season. Um, but I will say this more and more big name guys, big name prospects are visiting Auburn, um, putting Auburn in their, in their final list, um, scheduling official visits during the season. We talk about how big this Alabama recruiting class is in terms of in-state talent. Auburn's in the mix for quite a few guys there. Um, and, and I think this time last year, Auburn did not have a whole lot of good news in recruiting. The dead period really hurt them. Uh, they didn't have time to go and establish some of those relationships that you need in recruiting, and they were playing from behind. And on top of that, I think I think Auburn has proven, at least post-investigation, um, you know, from everything folks have said, just some of the things in the program have changed with Brian Harson the way they've done things. They've learned from what happened last year, and just, you know, I think recruiting is a big part of that. There's a number of guys that, you know, that Auburn's in a really good spot for. Um, and so I'll be interested to see how the summer continues to heat up that Auburn, you know, transfer portal is big. That that immediately affects your, affects your team right now. Um, you want to have a good enough season in 2022 so that you'll be back for the 2023 season. Auburn's, I wouldn't really necessarily call it momentum because they're, they're not racking up, you know, commitments left and right at this point. But there seems to be, more Auburn seems to be have a little bit more buzz about them. I would say a decent amount more buzz about them this summer than they had last summer recruiting. There's a number of reasons for that, but I think it is a step in the right direction. It'll be interesting to see if Auburn can make that payoff with his, with some commitments and what they do in the fall. Can they make that stick and uh, and continue to build up from what you were saying, Ben, earlier? Like Brian Harson and his staff were in a really really tough situation, really really tough situation, uh, and still get a spot, but. As we're recording this, um, here's an example. Uh, Rico Walker, who visited this past weekend, a uh, really good edge rusher from North Carolina, uh, has his final list out. Auburn is in the mix. 
Uh, he, he visited over the weekend. Georgia's in there as well. Tennessee, Miami, Clemson, Florida, some big names. Cincinnati's also in there. Uh, he's the son of a former Auburn defensive lineman, uh, Ricardo Walker. That was according to BMAT um, from Rivals uh, reporting that. So, uh, yeah, you know, this is a you got to continue to get into the mix for that. And, and I think Auburn's going to be a bigger player in recruiting over these next few months than they were last year, which is ultimately a, a really positive sign for Brian Harson and staff. You just got to be able to capitalize on it, I think is the big thing. And then there are the current players, and some of them are actually quite good. Yeah, so this was an interesting stat I wanted to briefly mention because we, we've talked a lot about here on the podcast. We've talked about a lot of Auburn players here recently, um, just certain guys. But one of my personal favorites to talk about because I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, just his game altogether, is Colby Wood. Uh, Pro Football Focus, um, their, their, their PFF College account tweeted on Sunday, um, Colby Wooden led SEC defensive tackles last season in pressures and defensive stops. So pressures, you know, affecting the quarterback. Defensive stops is run stops, basically. Um, last season, there was a time, and I think it's still held up by the end of the year, that you could have made the argument that there weren't any other power five, two-way defensive, like interior defensive linemen that were rushing the passer and stopping the run at the rates that Colby Wooden did. He was phenomenal. He was a phenomenal player last season. Decided to come back for another year. He's going to be huge. And, like, I don't think he has the same amount of buzz that, like, a Marlon Davidson had at his point in his career. But I think he should. I, I think he should. I think he's that type of player. I think he's he's got a lot of that going for him. And he's not playing next to Derek Brown. But, you know, he's going to be a key piece to what, what they have. And, you know, I think more and more people are paying closer attention to Colby Wooden because I think this is a dude who could – push for a really high draft pick next year. I think he'd be an all-SEC type of player. I think he's one of the best interior defensive linemen Auburn's had um, in the last decade or so. I think you could put him right up there with guys like uh, Marlon Davidson. Of course, Derek Brown's going to be the, the clear-cut favorite there, but I think he's in a really, really good spot um, You know, when it, when it comes to impact. And uh, a guy that is a good example of development and, and, and buying in and uh, waiting for your opportunity to turn it loose. Uh, he's it's just rare, especially nowadays when there's super specialized positions on the defensive front in, co- in college football and especially in the NFL. It's very rare when you have a defensive lineman that can do, you know, multiple things. You're, you're, I say multiple things. A defensive lineman that can impact the passing game and the, ru- and the running game as efficiently and effectively as a guy like Colby Wooden has. There's not very many of them, um, you know, across the board. Uh, they're really good guys. They're really good specialists. But Colby can do both, and that's why I think he's going to be a really special player, not just this year, but in the future. So I want to give a shout-out to Colby Wooden. Um, he's, he's, he's one of my favorite players to cover and talk to and, and write about, um, and he's a whole lot of fun to watch. So I wanted to, wanted to shout that out because I think when you want to talk about reasons to be optimistic in Auburn next season is I think that front, the, the front end of that defensive line, if they can stay healthy, there's not a ton of depth behind them established-wise, but – that that first wave of defensive line talent led by Colby Wooden, I think is going to be you know one of the better lines in the defense, one of the better defensive fronts in the SEC for sure. The end part of what you just said is what I feel largely, broadly about this team or this team's defensive line, which is that it's not going to be elite. It's probably not even going to be great. But the first line is going to be very good. Like, we've already had some potential talk about a first-rounder. 
on this team. Uh, there's a couple other guys alongside him in that first wave, as you just referenced, that are very talented college players with opportunities to play at the next level. Now, compared to some other schools, we've seen cranking out some linemen, probably not going to be quite to their level. I'm thinking Ohio State, Alabama, some years in the past, Clemson, even Auburn Georgia. back in 2019. Certainly Georgia, yeah, probably should mention Georgia's defensive line. But you I know, think even A&M's going to have a really good one this year, yeah. Uh, 2019 Auburn was, you know, pretty, pretty spectacular. So, so good. Uh, at least there is some level of consistency if you stay healthy on that side of the ball with the line. Cause I think, you know, a huge part of the conversation for the last three to four years has been, uh, offensively that line has, has just been problematic. And I, you know, there have been varying degrees of success with the defensive line, but yet another year in which you feel pretty good about what you're bringing in there. They just like, you know, God, yep. if anything, if anything in the way of injury bug hits them, you could be in for a, a tough year. Yeah. Uh, this, this defense, if this defense stays healthy, I think they have the potential to be, you know, just as good, if not better than they were last year, even losing Roger, losing Jacoby, losing some of those key guys. Um, but yeah, just stay healthy and that can be a difference maker. And if you want to see Auburn, be better than expected this year. I think that, I think guys like Colby Winter are going to have to be key parts to that. All right, um, before we go, uh, like we said earlier, we had uh, the podcast last week, the free free pod last week. If you haven't listened to it yet, we talked about alternate universes uh, of, uh, of 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 Auburn athletics. What would have happened if X would have happened? Or imagine a universe where this one thing changes, and what goes on from there. Um, and we said um, during the podcast, if uh, you know, if people had their own ideas and their own um, theories and, and and scenarios they wanted to pitch to us, send them in. So a lot of you emailed them, tweeted um, them at us, commented with them, and we said, you know, moving forward in the off season to pass some time here on the podcast, do something a little fun. We would do some more, um, and so we're gonna work through a list. Continue to send them. We will take them whenever uh, whenever you have them. I'll try to keep track of them all. This one was uh, shouted out by several people. Um, so I wanted to go ahead and get this one because it is such an interesting one. Take you back to 2011. Auburn has just won the national championship with Cam Newton. Uh, he is going to the league. Auburn is uh, going to have a great reset with their uh, with their you know tw- their 2011 uh, roster. They're looking to try to to replace the quarterback the best that they can. Uh, and it ends up being a combination of like Kyle Frazier and Barrett Trotter and I think Clint Mosley's involved there and there as well. Um, but never really, you know, Auburn, Auburn doesn't really click in that 2011 season like they probably, I don't know if they expected to, but like one of the issues that kept them from being more than just an average team in their, in their title defense year was the fact that they didn't have a whole lot of consistency at the quarterback position. Um, I say that Trotter and Mosley, Frazier played a little bit. Um, and then if 2012 is where Frazier played a lot more. Uh, here's a scenario for you. Um, during 2011, during the offseason 2011, uh, Auburn was courting um, another transfer quarterback to try to replace uh, the Juco guy that changed everything for them and won a national title in 2010. Uh, in 2011, Auburn went down to the wire for one, Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson um, leaves, uh, leaves, uh, NC state 
after going to spring training with the Rockies. Um, and then he ends up uh, leaving Wisconsin, or leaving NC State for one more year. Auburn gets a visit from him. They are in the mix. Gene Chizik, Gus Malzahn push really, really hard for Russell Wilson. He ends up going to Wisconsin, and uh, the rest is history. He is a uh, third round pick at uh, you know third round pick for the Seattle Seahawks. Ends up winning the uh, winning the Super Bowl, nine time Pro Bowler, all that. Now as a member of the Denver Broncos. Um, Painter, let's lay out the scenario for you. What happens if Auburn in 2011 gets to replace one Russell Wilson, I mean, one Cam Newton with one Russell Wilson? What does 2011 Auburn and beyond look like? It depends on how much you think about the compounding effect of a season because when you look at the team's wins, it was beating teams that should have beaten and when you look at its losses that year, it was getting smoked by teams that were probably better. I the do exception think was that weird road win at South Carolina. Sure. That they that's won by good, three. Yeah, that's a yeah. good – given that South Carolina has mostly flailed since about this time, this is a good, a good thing to bring up. They had a couple more nice seasons, but right – Pretty soon after Spurrier leaves, and of course it's we know where they're at now. I think there's a good to fair argument they could have beaten Clemson at the beginning of the year. Uh, they end up losing that one 38-24, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And then they end up losing to Arkansas midway through the season pretty badly. Uh, again, I'm wondering, you know, just it was having... An awesome, that was an awesome Arkansas team. Right, and so they, they lose 30... Uh, let's see, they lose 38-24. So, uh, no, I'm wrong. 38-24 to Clemson, 38-14. So, yeah. you know, when you start, we talked about this recently with the Auburn-Georgia game where I sort of felt like if Auburn doesn't lose the A&M game, they could have beaten Georgia, and you pushed back and said, hey, like they scored like <laughs> one touchdown, dude. That's a lot of points to make up. Yeah. And I think you could at least follow your line of logic for most of their losses this season. But, you know, there is such a thing as – we talk about momentum as being hard to quantify, but as a season yeah. ebbs and flows, like you saw that 2013 football team start picking up steam. It started figuring itself out. It started building confidence. Certainly it felt like it had figured something out offensively that worked for it. I have to think that that's in play with a talent as good as Russell Wilson that changes the trajectory and belief and the confidence of your team that you end up finding some things that work well. And this is still in the creative innovative period of Gus Malzahn as an OC, right? Like he's still a big deal offensively. um, And and there's no perception I think yet of him becoming stale. So what I'm trying to say is even though a lot of these losses to teams like Georgia, like Alabama, like Arkansas, were not particularly close. um, If you go back and look, for instance, in the iron bowl that year, I think Auburn is trailing in the third quarter of something like 27 to 14 before a touchdown and a defensive touchdown end up really blowing that one open. I can convince myself that Auburn wins like two of those four. And instead of going like, you know, eight and four, I think they went or whatever it was. They they win two more games. And at Auburn, if you're winning 10 games, as much as I hate to admit it, because I wish the standard were a little bit higher, like winning 10 games at Auburn is a big deal. Look, and you would have won 10 games back-to-back years for the first time since the 80s. That's that's the, you know, we've talked about it before, Penner. That's the peak that Auburn continues to try to chase um, historically. It's just, you know, that's Auburn, man. Like, it's hard to win 10 games. It's hard to win 10 games You're a year in college football. surrounded by these state programs, Alabama and LSU and Georgia, and not so much recently, but at one point even Tennessee, and same thing with Florida. Like, it's... 
ah, it's tough. And so, it sucks because it's like, I think we should hold ourselves in higher regard at times, but also there is a reality you must face in which you are not the flagship state school and you are surrounded by a bunch of those. Yeah. A couple things I want to point out here. Um, 2011 Auburn's offense, uh, Pat through the air was pretty much, they were allergic to it in that wild comeback win over Utah state to open the year. Um, Auburn threw the ball. Well, they did not hit 200 yards passing the rest of the season. Um, they just cracked 2000 yards by the end of the year as passing. They just did not want to throw the ball because they didn't have any sort of consistency at quarterback. I will point out, though, even though Auburn was 109th in the country in passing yards per game in 2011, they were about in the 60s sixties or 70s uh, in yards per attempt, which means when they did throw the ball, it wasn't the worst in the world. 6.9 yards per attempt. P.S., that's the same number they averaged in 2021 through the air. Um, just obviously a lot more volume. So they could be efficient when they did it. They just didn't do it very often because it was really kind of boom or bust. Um I will point out, though, that in 20, uh, 2010, Auburn's leading receivers are Darvin Adams, Terrell Zachary, Emory Blake, Cody Burns, Philip Lutzenkirk. In 2011, Emory Blake's still back. Philip Lutzenkirk is still back. Uh, Auburn also has uh, Quindarius Carr, Travante Stallworth, D'Angelo Benton. Uh, Ontario McKellip caught a lot of passes that year and one freshman five-star Trevon Reed and Quan Bray also in the mix as well. Here's my argument. The talent Auburn had at wide receiver and at running back that year, not as much as in 2010. It was a step back, obviously, but just because you didn't have the, you had guys went to the league after winning, winning the national title or guys ended their careers. Let me remind you how good Russell Wilson was in 2011 for Wisconsin. For Wisconsin, a, a man for, coached by who, by the way? This is not exactly... That was Burt. That, uh, yeah, was, a, that like, was a Burt team. A program that usually falls on its face when it matters most and is coached by a very funny man. Um, Russell Wilson, 33 touchdowns, four interceptions. He completed 73% of his passes, uh, which was more he had at NC State. He was a sub-60% passer at NC State. Um 3,100 yards. His his quarterback rating that year was a sparkling 191.8. He also ran for six touchdowns. That 191.8 at the time was the most efficient season any quarterback had ever put, put together in college football history. Uh, he won. Uh, he led Wisconsin to the first ever Big Ten championship game, which they beat Michigan State over. And I'm sorry, he was third team All American, ninth in Heisman Trophy voting. Uh, and uh, had a really good game and a shootout loss to Oregon in the Rose Bowl. Russell Wilson was an incredible quarterback for year for, um, for Wisconsin. For Wisconsin. A Wisconsin team that um, if you go and look at see what who they had at wide receiver that year, um, it's Jared Abaderas, Nick Toon. I mean, just guys that you know, maybe if you remember those guys, but you know him because, well, they were getting the ball thrown to him by Russell Wilson. He would have had more. He would have had more wide receiver talent at Auburn. He would have had a better running game next to him at Auburn, not just with Ontario McCaleb, but also a big year from one Michael Dyer. Um, it would have been a really good offense. It would have been a really really fun offense to watch. Um, why did Why did Russell Wilson go to Wisconsin? Why did Russell Wilson go to Wisconsin? Painter. Um, it was the offensive line. Of course, Auburn's offensive line in 2010, very senior-laden. A lot of those guys left. That led into the way Auburn's offense was um, this past uh, or in 2011. Um, 
but he he picked Wisconsin because of that offensive line, because of that super super talent uh, and and production that they have up front in Wisconsin almost year in and year out on the offensive line. Those guys protected him. He made it happen. But he would have had more skill position talent at Auburn. I think I'm 100% in agreement with you, Painter. I think a Russell Wilson-Auburn team probably wins 10 games and gets a better bowl bid, uh, tries to become the first Auburn team to have back-to-back 10-win seasons. And I think it's just you show a level of consistency that, look, it might not have turned around. 2012 was 2012, right? Like, that thing fell apart so quickly. And, and quarterback play was a big part of that. But just everything just went south. I do Auburn. think it actually strengthens my earlier point about a compounding mm-hmm. sort of momentum that the season – like you just get to a point in the season in 2012 where you've lost LSU and Mississippi State and you're getting smoked by A&M and the locker room's falling apart and suddenly a team that probably was pretty good based on what happened literally a year later is like, no, we're out, we're done. Maybe Auburn has to figure out what they do in 2012 at quarterback, right? You know, the, the obviously the Kyle Frazier thing didn't work. Um, you're not going to try to kick a man while he's down, but, like, it, it didn't work. And, and Auburn, you know, uh, it, 2012 was going to be a tough reason for, a tough season for a number of reasons. But let's just, let's just game it out a little bit. If Auburn wins the national title with Cam Newton in 2010, if they get Russell Wilson and get a 10-win season with him in 2011 – does Auburn not get in a really good spot to pick off another transfer in 2012? Um, I don't know who was a, who was a transfer in 2012, um, you know, at quarterback, but I think Auburn would have kind of like what we've seen in basketball with Bruce Pearl. I think they would have shown that they're a pretty good destination. Um, and then, of course, you know, Auburn tries to get Jeremy Johnson in 2013, and you feel like things start to stabilize after that. But, you know, 2012 might not have happened if Russell Wilson was your quarterback in 2011. Yeah, yeah, that's my thought. Is like it, totally it might not changed. have been a collapse. I don't know if they make a bowl. I don't know how much necessarily changes, but I don't think it it flatlines so quickly because I think they're just the concept of program momentum, like you were talking about, Painter, the compounding effect. I think it carries into 2012 where Auburn isn't quite as bad, and and maybe they get to figure out the quarterback situation. Well, does Gus Malzahn stick around for another season if they win 10 games, and so they don't hire Scott Leffler? Do they go back to the grad transfer portal? Like, is that a team that wins 10 games? So it goes national title, 10-win season, and then gets back to its more traditional 7-8 wins in 2012. Because remember, Gus goes to be a head coach. Right. Right. But there was kind of some iffiness in 2011, if you remember correctly, about, like, Gus not being able to run his full bore offense with the talent they had that kind of got handcuffed a little bit from – what the the word was was that all, you know Gus wasn't getting, you know, wasn't able to do all the stuff he wanted to do in that 2011 season. Now the Which roster is interesting probably, because that becomes a conversation for almost the next decade. Yeah, it's almost it's almost <laughs> as if hey, it's almost as if head coaches like con- having control and like when it's your neck on the line, <laughs> you know, you 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 be you're pretty involved. It might in influence the way you see things. But I say this to say this, man. I think Auburn doesn't necessarily collapse in 2012. I think Gene, the Gene Chizik era lasts a little bit longer. I, I do wonder how much – I mean, remember – Yeah, you don't end up hiring Gus. I'm convinced you don't end up making a coaching change in 2013 because you're coming off Maybe you get a Gus couple later. of really nice seasons. Yeah. I, will point, I will point this out, though. Auburn recruited pretty well during during that stretch, you know. And that wasn't necessarily a problem under under Chizik was that, you know, they couldn't necessarily – couldn't sit there and say, well, they just didn't didn't have really good recruiting classes. After the so-so 2011 season uh, that Auburn had, uh, looking here at 24-7 sports, 
Um, Auburn signs was a low, the number 11 class in the country. It ends up being a class where guys end up being the foundation of future big-time classes. Avery Young is in that, in that group. Ricardo Lewis is on that team. Josh Holsey's on that team. Patrick Miller's on that team. You know, they're a big offensive line. Matt Casanova McKenzie's on that team. Alex Kozan's on that, uh, in that, I keep saying team, in that class. Jonathan Jones. So not a huge, like, just mind-blowing class, but a pretty good one at the time. I'll say this to say this, Painter. I want to I want to throw one more one more curveball here at you. Let's say Auburn gets Russell Wilson in 2011. That the consistency of the offense maintains itself. Auburn has a better offensive outlook heading into a 2012 season. Maybe they don't have Leffler. Maybe Auburn sticks with a Gus style system. Maybe Gus is still around. Remember, Gus did leave to go be a, to go be a head coach though, in which had to state. have been a goal of his for quite some time, given how right. many years he's now spent at Tulsa and at Auburn. But let's say Auburn has a 10-win season, really good bowl game. Russell Wilson's off to the NFL. Auburn gets to claim him as 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 one of their own moving forward. Well, how good does it look to have Cam Newton and Russell Wilson playing in the NFL at the same time? And you're you know you're saying, hey, we did that, right? Right, wrong, or indifferent? Because they only played for you for one season. Yeah, you're gonna cr- you're gonna claim it no matter what. There's a lot to that. There's just a better buzz around Auburn. There's more consistency around Auburn. More people are excited about the offense at Auburn. I mentioned all those all those guys that signed in that twenty that twenty twelve class. Ricardo Lewis really the only skill position player that really stands out on offense. But but I will point out, Auburn had a shot at someone else. I don't know if you know where I'm going with this painter, but twenty twelve class Auburn it, late in the game, like before national signing day, they host a five-star wide receiver on an official visit, and he has Auburn in his final five, he ends up going somewhere else, and he ends up having a really good career at his college destination, and he ends up going to the NFL. And at this point in time, even though he was, a, you know, he's been in the league for a little bit at this point, he is one of the best wide receivers in the NFL today. My point in this is this. If Auburn gets Russell Wilson and has more consistent offense in, in 2011, has a better season, and has a better chain of reactions that solidifies the offense heading into 2012, I'm here to say, make the argument, that in 2012, Auburn might be able to pull off a signing day surprise and snag Stephon Diggs to their 2012 team. And Stephon Diggs is a member of the Auburn Tigers instead of the Maryland Terrapins. Where this is where he ends up going, and that's where he ends up having his really good career. But Auburn had an official visit for Diggs, and they were in the hunt for him. Maybe if they were better off, if the outlook on offense was better, maybe Diggs would have been an Auburn Tiger. What a sweet boy, our Buffalo Bills. We love him, folks. I, I, I yeah, that, I tend to think the big thing is you don't make a coaching move for at least a few more years, and who's to say what sort of momentum if you go national title, ten wins, and then even eight wins. In 2012, I mean, obviously the difference in winning three games, the worst you've had in the last 60 years and winning eight, which is about par for the course, is a gulf that's quite extreme. I mean, I don't know where Gene Chizik stands at that point, but I don't think he's getting fired anytime soon. So basically, then you're looking at a bunch of options going, all right, well, maybe it collapses in 2014. I don't know. We're trying to predict these things based on roster moves that didn't happen. Uh, I I tend to think that Chiswick's still there midway, like 2015-ish, if he still wins seven or eight games in 2014, 
after, you know, because the way the timeline shapes out for me is national title 2010 season, 10 win season 2011, 8 win season 2012. I'm thinking you've built up some goodwill basically for at least one season and then going into like 2014 ish, you're kind of like, all right, like, where is this going? Yeah. Where, and, yeah. Do you keep, are you able to keep it up without Gus? You and know, to the point you, you and Kirshner made the other day, like Auburn hasn't always been quick to pull the trigger on coaches. There's a bit of a perception around Auburn that we cycle through coaches, but really it's just that every cycle we're like, what are our options and where could we be? And where do we think we should be? And what's actually realistic? And should we ignore anything that's realistic? Right. So, right. you know, I, I getting digs would have been sick, but like, could, Ch- awesome. could Chizik have like parlayed a Russell Wilson thing into some other impressive quarterback so that you're not so stranded in 2012 and, and quarterback wasn't the only issue, but certainly it was a glaring one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think I, also I, like as much as it doesn't fall room, apart like it does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like, you know, the word locker room and culture gets tossed around a lot because it's just easy things to say that are vague, but like, you know, winning tends to cure those things and uh, having a better quarterback. If they had wound up with a better quarterback in 2012 might at least have taken the edge off a little bit. Yeah. 100%. All right. That'll do it wait, for this. Wait, 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 The king What's of up? cap, Nick Saban. Whoa. We forgot to talk about that. Our, our God of parody. Look, this yeah, is a, a I forgot largely, you wrote this down. Go largely go pro for Nick Saban here. Like I think he's, he, I have softened on him over the years. As many of you are already aware uh, I find him to sort of in his older age have become more and more likable. But his comments, I think to Paul Feinbaum, correct me if I'm wrong for yes, uh, about getting back to parody, there has never been any, and there will not ever be any. And, you know, I'm not here to say if that's okay or not. I guess I'd prefer that there be a little bit more parody, but I still love college football regardless of the fact that right now as it stands, three to four teams – are going to win the championship and historically about 10 to 12 teams are going to win the championship. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So the quote was, he told Feinbaum, he said, quote, one of the things I would like to see us be able to work back to is everything in college football has always had parody. And this was about NIL. It was about other stuff, but dude, come on. Just patently false. (laughs) It's like the sport has never had parody ever. Ever. It is one of the most, like... It is how the Ivy League teams have, still to this day, have a ton of titles. Because at one point, when the sport originated, only a handful of them were playing the game. And from there, we've sort of seen it sprout out to different times and different programs and different places, having varying degrees of, of concentrated success. Yeah. The number of teams that have won national championships in college football, let's see. And I'm of the opinion, and I think Kirshner made this point on, on Twitter recently, where it was like, you know, I'm of the opinion that, like, the, the national championship isn't everything. Like, it shouldn't be everything. Only one of them gets to get it every year. And even if you have a – and especially if you have a four-team playoff, like, you should be able – like, Auburn. We just mentioned with Auburn. Like, and I know Auburn and Georgia, Alabama and Georgia and LSU and all those teams, like, you know, it, it drives you crazy, Auburn fans. I get it. I understand that. But, like, Auburn has not won back-to-back double-digit – we had had double digit win seasons and back to back years since the eighties. Like getting that would be a huge accomplishment for the program. Huge. Right. And that has nothing to do with winning a national title. 
Nothing. Not, it's not everything to bit. do about who you play and where you stand in that region. And why right. it is that Ohio State, as Kirshner alluded to, can simply reload and clean up because of the talent they have in the region they're in. Yeah. Uh, you know, according to only 62 teams in college football claim a national championship. I mean, claim a national title, right? Which is a pretty loose thing that a lot of schools tend to do, even when you only, go, oh. Only 44 teams claim multiple titles. That's the one that really gets me. It's like, it's one thing to just say, hey, in 1951, we were feeling ourselves in some poll that you haven't heard of in the Midwest gave it to us, so we, we stuck a banner up. It's like, can you do it more than once? Yeah. Only 44 teams can claim multiple national championships. Claim. This is not like actual hold the trophy stuff. Claim multiple national championships. They've been playing college football since 1869. Okay? <laughs> it's been a long, 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 long time. Long time that this sport is being played. There has never been parity. That has never been the case whatsoever. He, Nick Saban is the is is the head coach of the school that up until recently won the national championship in recruiting every single year. They got as much talent as possible because they could. There is no salary cap. There is no draft. You get who you can get, and your resources and your success and all that play into it. We know that. We know that there's not parity. Auburn is one of the fifteen. One of the 15, 20, I, I, I say top 15. Auburn is one of the top 15 programs in college football all time. All time. They have just two national championships to their name, right? And they have gone 30-plus years without having back-to-back double-digit win seasons, something that some teams like Alabama and Georgia and Ohio State do in their sleep now. It's never been parity. There's never been parity in this at all. And a lot of people cr- crush saving for it. And he probably doesn't care. But a lot of people crushed Saban for it, including Lane Kiffin, who had the best response to it, where he tweeted the dictionary definition of parody to Paul Feinbaum and asked him if he knew what that word meant. Which is um, funny, but also, like, it should also be pointed out and has been done so by the likes of Kirshner and Godfrey uh, on their podcast that Kiffin is doing this, and it is all very cute, and we enjoy it that someone at their that's basically a peer of Nick Saban, more or less, is the one doing it. Uh, but he's doing this because he wants you to know that, ah, well, it's very unfair that my team isn't as good as yours. Like, at the end of the day, this yeah, is all exactly. fun to see someone that is a head coach act this way. But basically, it's so that Nick's, Nick's, or that Lane Kiffin can be like, well, you know, it's always going to be harder for me at Ole Miss, so you should feel bad for me. Again, it's like what I say all the time. The, mo- the closest comparison to college football that we have in any other sport is... European soccer, there is no parity there. Look, Liverpool's going to try to win everything, and if they don't, Manchester City is going to win it. Spain has been dominated forever by Real Madrid and FC Barcelona. Germany, in Germany, Bayern Munich just won their eighth straight. Was like, yeah, their eighth straight title there. That's one of the more competitive leagues in the world. Parity just doesn't exist when you have an uncapped, and look, parity's hard to find in some of the capped leagues as well, but when you have an unsalary capped league with no draft, and you get what you get, and you have the resources to do whatever you want. It's just if you can afford it, and if you can, and if you can make it happen, this is what's going to happen. And that's why college football is so unique. It's why college football is a whole lot of fun. I think it's why, you know, I think it's why when you are a team like an Auburn, or you know, 
some other ones down the line that when you make these runs and you have these seasons, it should feel sweeter and be sweeter and be more appreciated because they don't come very often because the world is not set up for you to be successful. This whole thing is, is built for you to fail to the Titans and for, for a team like Auburn and for other teams, it's like cherish when you do get them and, and, and celebrate it because those are really, really special. And know also that even if you don't, measure up to them you're still in a lot better spot than a whole lot of other teams because of where you are and where you sit uh in the world um and uh i think it's also a great example because of the way college basketball is smaller rosters more teams um way bigger field to determine a national champion there's a whole lot more upward mobility and i think bruce pearl is a great example of this in college basketball than it is in college football right you can reach the pinnacle in college basketball because of all the different rules including the one and done rule you can reach the pinnacle a lot easier than you can do in football because in football you've got decades and decades of history and hundreds of millions of dollars going up against you. So that's where it is. That's where you are. So when Nick Saban does it, it's nothing more than funny to me because it's just like, yeah, brother, we all know, we all, we all know you don't believe this. Well, we it, all it, know you it's don't perfect this. too because he can say it and it looks good because the casual observer will simply pass through the gym and see the television headline Saban wants parody, or they will get an SDS notification in their email inbox that says Saban wants parody. He can say whatever he wants. There will never be parody. He will continue to look good for winning and also saying it should be more fair for everyone. While reaping the benefits of it not being fair at all. And that's just how it goes. Like, this isn't a value judgment on him or what the Alabama Athletic Department has at its disposal. It's just a simple truth that basically, with the exception of probably, like, Texas, maybe Ohio State, maybe Georgia, like, there's no one else yeah, it's Southern Cal. There's no one else doing what Alabama does, uh, not just in terms of wins, but what it can offer you uh, behind the scenes. So shout out to him and, for making and, the and, smart and, play publicly. And I think what you know, Saban did all that for Alabama. And I think part of the reason that I think I don't think it gets overlooked, but uh, but I think it's a, a big key that like Nick Saban doing that at Alabama, part of why he's been able to do this is because it's Alabama, right? It's not just as like, oh, he got all the great recruiting classes and he kept it rolling at Alabama. It's like, well, Alabama had a history before that, right? He had, to that point, they had the best coach of all time before Saban came along in, in Bear Bryant. And like, there's that history there that keeps it going. I think a good example of that is a little bit different, but like Clemson ha- at one point in time has been as dominant as ever, but Clemson does not have that same historical, you know, strength that an Alabama does. If you want to and make so, the new money analogy, you could do it. Yeah, they're newer money. And like, you know, it, it's just, it's 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 harder to be consistent in that point. Whereas a place like Alabama or Ohio State, and like even Georgia can have a look, like Georgia's kind of in that second tier, like historically. And if they keep it up, they're going to be up there. But A like, lot of wins, not as many championships. Right. That's why like an Ohio State does it or, you know, Oklahoma is going to be a great example of that. It's easier, like, it's been easier for Oklahoma to maintain their level of super dominance for where they are than it has been for Clemson. Clemson's a little bit newer money, and I think that history plays a part into it as well. Like Alabama, right. somebody else could have hired Nick Saban and gotten all these really good recruiting classes, but I don't know if you necessarily have the same consistency if he did yeah. it at like a, if he did it at like a, 
It's an interesting thought experiment because we've seen him have success at LSU, but would he have won six national titles or whatever it's been and gone to essentially like nine or ten of them if If he he did it at South Carolina? Or, yeah, South Carolina, Carolina. certainly. But, like, I'm wondering, okay, Florida is, you know, a top-tier program. But do you think yeah. that the obsession rides and runs? Is he as doing this deep? in Arkansas? Yes. Does it run as deep at essentially any other place that are not Alabama or Texas? And I think the clear answer is no. Even even at a step up from Arkansas or South Carolina, Florida, where they've won multiple national titles, it's hard to envision that sort of obsession. I, I don't know if Saban. I don't know if say if Saban never leaves LSU. I don't know if he does that. You yeah. Know? No. Like, I, I don't know if he gets. I don't know if. Also, I don't think everybody's ever going to be on the same page at LSU. But. So chaotic, some of these schools. Yeah. Like, you know, and it was in Alabama. It was at Alabama before Saban uh, all kind of snapped into place. It's there. like, I, I don't know if this is right, but like it seems like he sort of used that Texas offer that was always sort of hanging out there as leverage and was like, if y'all don't get it together and basically just give me the ball at all times, I'm just going to leave. And like that may yeah. not have had anything to do with it, but there's a certain element to me of like, more or less 10 years ago, they'd won multiple titles at that point, and they were like, well, what if we just got out of his way and gave him all of the money? <laughs> what if we did? What if we just let him do everything? And the rest is history, folks. We love it. Which is why it's hilarious that Texas will never have that. <laughs> Losers. Because they are one of the few that have more money than Alabama. No draft picks, baby. boy. All right, now we are done. This has been a long podcast. Um, Well, we appreciate you guys listening and tuning in. We will have more throughout the week, some newsletters, uh, football and basketball. Mailbag will be back on Friday uh, this week, and uh, we will have our premium podcast on Thursday. Um, So auburnobserver.com, sign up uh, and subscribe. If you want access to all that, we send it straight in your email inbox every single weekday uh, at 6 a.m. Central Time. You'll either get a podcast or a newsletter, And that will uh, get going again tomorrow with a new newsletter. So that's it for me. Painter, final thoughts. In the era of the AP poll since 1936, who was the first coach to win Division I national championships at two different schools? Urban Meyer, Jim Tressel, Lou Holtz, or Nick Saban? Um, You're overthinking it. Yeah, it's Saban. <laughs> Correct, my friend. You've done I was, it again. I was like, I was like, Holtz never won another one anywhere. And then I was like, I, my head was going like Urban. I was like, eh, Urban was before, so, but yeah, nope. Pretty fitting. It's my first night out with you. Go to the turkey. Treat me right and buy me shoes. No mumbo sewing. Let me be your fantasy play with me